thank you once again for your very warm welcome and it is a real pleasure to be here today, especially on Student Sunday, and to have the challenge of looking at these subjects with you. Of course, we can probably only skim the surface of uh, the matters, the weighty matters before us tonight, but at least we can have some kind of introduction to thinking about the role that we play in creating a better society. And thank you for your enthusiasm about my little book that I brought this morning. Uh, they did seem to sell very quickly. And uh, so what I've said I'll do is I'll send some more over um, and they will be available a few weeks from now. I, I think we do need a reprint. I've asked for a reprint uh, of it. And so I'll, in the next few weeks, I'll get some more copies and send them to you. And, and once again, I would just repeat my, my point that I'd be very happy for the students and the congregation to have a copy. Just take one as a gift. And I've tried to set down in that book um, some of the things that have been important to me in my life. And there are a couple of chapters that deal particularly with intelligent design and with Darwinism and evolution and education. And that these chapters in particular you might find helpful. There's also a chapter about why I'm still a Christian. And in that I've tried to lay out uh, fairly simply the reasons why uh, I believe that Christianity is true. Uh, and I've thought about this over most of my lifetime and I've tried to put it into the, a chapter in my book. So there it is, and uh, thanks for your interest, and I will try and pass some more uh, books over to the church in due course. Now this evening's subject is indeed challenging, to think about a good society and a better society, and so what I'd like to do this evening is try and give some indication as to how Christians over the centuries have thought about this, and how they've tried to serve God in terms of their contribution to society. It's particularly important to deal with this on Student Sunday because, of course, one of the hallmarks of being a student is um, having enthusiasm and having a sense of the future and a sense of the possibilities. And I think most people that go to higher education do so, not just for reasons uh, of securing for themselves a good career, although that is certainly important, but to make some kind of contribution to society and to have a sense that we're privileged to be where we are, both in general terms and particularly in terms of academic opportunities, so that we can use our lives purposefully and usefully, and that we can create a better society around us. So that's the, the thrust of what we're going to think about tonight. Now, there are several passages of Scripture that I would like to say something about tonight, but time may defeat me. So what we'll do is we'll perhaps read them one at a time and pause on each of them, and think about their implications. So, first of all, I'd like to invite you to read with me some verses from the Gospel according to Luke, and in chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. And uh, this is a very well-known passage, it is the parable of the Good Samaritan. But uh, I'd like you to uh, see how this parable arises out of the very matter that we were thinking about this morning, which is, the greatest commandment in the law. So here it is, in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. 
Now we were thinking of the first part of that as a particular inspiration for uh, academic and university studies to love the Lord with our heart, our soul, our strength, our mind. Mind particularly because God has given us our intellect. It's a very interesting book published a year or two back um, by a world-renowned philosopher called Thomas Nagel. It's a short book called Mind and Consciousness. It's the subtitle of the book that's actually explosive. It says, how the neo-Darwinian conception of nature is almost certainly false. It's got him into quite a lot of trouble. In fact, some of his colleagues very helpfully suggested that he shouldn't be allowed to teach students anymore. Because if you question Darwinism, that kind of puts you beyond the pale. His argument was that Darwinism is completely unable to explain the phenomenon of mind and consciousness other than that it is somehow an accidental byproduct of an accidental process. It just kind of happened. Now, it, this is a very, very, very bizarre position to get into because, as Nagel argues, the most fundamental feature of our existence is our capacity to think and to use our minds. And perhaps the most mysterious part of human experience is our consciousness. I mean, you are conscious, I hope. <laughs> I hope you haven't dozed off just yet. But you're conscious of your surroundings and you're probably thinking about what I'm saying, although that's not necessarily the case and I have no way of knowing what you're thinking, which is one of the mysterious things about consciousness. And we have this incredible capacity to think beyond ourselves in ways that have nothing to do with our personal survival. We, have, we, we are able to think high thoughts, uh, sometimes unworthy thoughts, strange thoughts, but we can think about things beyond ourselves. And this is, uh, as Nagel says, the most mysterious thing of human experience. And he says, any theory of life and its origins that can't explain mind and consciousness hasn't explained anything hasn't started to explain anything, which is why he subtitles his book, Why the Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False. And in the course of his book, he goes further and says that Neo-Darwinism is a triumph of ideology over common sense. And, and that's a profound thing for a world-renowned philosopher to say. Um, and this impresses on us the significance of our mind and our consciousness. And I think you could make an argument that the most obvious a basis for believing that God's, God exists is our mind and our consciousness. And this passage of scripture says we should love the Lord with all our might because that is his most precious gift to us. Incidentally, Nagel is an atheist which makes his pronouncements about Darwinism all the more trenchant. Uh, he kind of sees through it even although he himself has no uh, belief in a world beyond this. Or maybe he's agnostic. He's somewhere between the two. But that was a very profound book uh, and a very interesting book. And Nagel is one of a steady stream of scientists and philosophers who are challenging the neo-Darwinian paradigm of life and saying, well, I'm not ready to accept design, but I can see that this theory is not the theory that works to explain our existence. But as Christians, we accept our minds along with our hearts, our souls, our strength as the gifts that God has given us to be returned to him and to be offered to him 
as our service and to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, strength and mind. And then to love our neighbour as ourself. And that, that's the thrust of what I'd like us to think about this morning. Love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbour? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is a profound parable. This is a beautiful children's story for Sunday school. But it's a profound story for adults. Because it is an incident, it's not a story, it's an incident, uh, that um, explains to us, (coughs) in practical everyday terms, what God expects of us. And how we can show our commitment to Christ and to God's law by acting like the Samaritan. So here's the man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. I've seen this road. I travelled it on a bus actually, which is much more congenial than the way this man was travelling. But it's pretty bleak country. And you could see how even today it would be dangerous country, ideal for terrorists and the like. Uh, bleak and difficult country but this man is travelling from Jerusalem to Jericho and he falls into the hands of the robbers who almost kill him and leave him half dead now what happens next is theologically devastating a priest passes by so here you have one of the priestly caste of the Jewish faith probably travelling to or from Jerusalem to worship in the temple and to perform the God-given religious rite. So he was a man with a high calling and a man with a mission, but no time to deal with a man half dead by the wayside. Now, we can only speculate as to why this happened. It may have happened because the Old Testament law required that if a priest was going to serve in the temple, he could not defile himself beforehand by being in contact with a dead body. So maybe that was the problem. If I get involved with this individual, I might disqualify myself from the ritual religious calling to which I am on my way. So he just walks past on the other side. And the Levite, who was in a similar position, who would have been a servant at the temple in other ways, came to the place and saw him and passed by on the other side. Now you must have a sense of how devastating this was to the antagonistic Pharisees and Sadducees and priests and others who were listening to the revolutionary teaching of Jesus. What he is saying is that these official representatives of the Jewish faith hadn't a clue what to do for somebody in trouble and appeared to have been obsessed with formal liturgical matters 
and didn't want this poor individual to get in the way of what they were doing. That remains a challenge for all religious people. It's this challenge about compartmentalizing your life and becoming so obsessed with ritual, uh, with, with, with religious ritual that you fail to see the need that is right in front of your eyes. And then from the point of view of the religious establishment, this, the parable gets even worse. Because Jesus says, a Samaritan as he travelled came where the man was and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, a Samaritan, for goodness sake, these are the people that broke away from Judaism. These are the people that violated the ancient law. These are the people that set up a centre of worship that was not approved by the Jewish people. What would they know about anything? And the point of the parable is that they knew everything about how to deal with the individual who was in need. And so this Samaritan takes pity on him, deals with his wounds, puts him on his donkey, brings him to an inn, not only pays the deposit, but pays in advance and says, look after this poor man. Now all of this is an answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And the answer seems to be, your neighbor is the person in need that you encounter where you are. And can you imagine what a, what a different world it would be if everybody who saw someone right before them in need dealt with that? We would say it's a disgrace that social services have not got patrols on this road. That this is a disgrace. The government should be doing something about this. They should be fixing that road. They should be passing laws about this. That's the kind of way we would deal with this. In other words, this is not my responsibility. This is something government should be dealing with. But that's not what Jesus taught. What Jesus taught was that this Samaritan, who in the estimate of the Jews had a clue about theology, but he actually understood the thrust of the law of God. Because the law of God said, love your neighbor as yourself. And this is an absolutely profound Christian principle. Probably unrivaled in the religions of the world. Do to others as they would have them, as you, as you would have them do to you. And so this parable teaches the profound responsibility that each of us has to deal with the need as we encounter it before our eyes. We've just got a number of people here this evening. Wonderful that you're here. Thank you for coming. But just think of the reservoir of social energy that exists in a group of people this big. If each one of us, when confronted with a particular need that we could meet, dealt with it. And that seems to me to be the fundamental principle of Christianity in building a better society. It is not that we necessarily construct new political parties or develop new social programs. I'm not saying these things don't need to be done. But if we just did the obvious thing and expressed the love of Christ to the person nearest to us in need, then it would make a profound change. And actually, it is that element of Christianity that has profoundly changed our world. And you could argue that the society that we enjoy in the West has been bound, has been built on principles that lie beneath the surface of this parable, which is that every individual is made in the image of God. Every individual is uniquely precious. Every individual matters as much as every other individual. And Christians at the best have always understood that their task is to see in others the image of God 
and to show within their capability and within their sphere of influence the love of Christ in whatever practical way it is possible for us to deal with it. Now if I stopped there and said no more, I think I would pretty much have conveyed to you what I think the basis of a better society is. Just do the obvious thing. In the name of Christ, just show the love of Christ to the person nearest to you and see the difference that it makes, not just to the individual, but to others. And this is like much of Jesus' teaching, so controversial and so challenging because he's challenging the religious establishment who didn't really care about people in need and uses a 10th-rate theologian, a Samaritan, uses him to be the hero of his story. Um, This is a profound parable and one that we should think very carefully about. Now, over the years of my Christian experience, I have increasingly come to understand the importance of knowing why I am a Christian and understanding my Christian faith. So I have been, over many years, and particularly of the last two or three decades, particularly concerned with what Christians call apologetics. That's not apologising for your faith. Some Christians are always guilty of doing that, and I suppose on occasions I might have been when I was certainly younger, not sure about what to say in public about my faith. But apologetics is from the Greek word apologia, which means to make a defence. And Christian apologetics is the matter of understanding the Christian faith and being able to defend it. And that's part of the reason why I have immersed myself for the last 20 years or 15 years or so in intelligent design, because I think that intelligent design is one element of apologetics, because arguing purely from scientific data It challenges us to see the profound design that exists in the universe. And if there is design in the universe that is scientifically observable, then that means there's a mind behind the universe, and that becomes entirely consistent with a theistic view of the world. I still get very excited about that, because while everybody says, well, you're just Bible thumpers, you're just people that take Genesis literally, you're just people that have an axe to grind. No, we haven't. This is a a profound matter. The scientific data points unswervingly in the direction of universal design. That's been important to me. And so one part of apologetics is to recognize, as I would call it, God in nature. The second, of course is to recognise the significance of Christ in history. That we're not dealing with fairy stories, we are dealing with real historical events. Things that actually happened um, in Jerusalem, Judea, and Palestine, in the early Roman Empire. And to understand that what we are dealing with is not wishful thinking, but a matter of actual history. And so God in nature, Christ in history, his death and his resurrection, are the solid basis on which... I would rest my Christian faith. There is a third dimension to this, of course, and that is what I would call simply the spirit in experience, the Holy Spirit in experience. It is one thing to be able to make an intellectual defense of the faith in terms of God's existence and in terms of the uniqueness of Christ and his place in history. Um, But if Christianity is true, and it is, then it must also be true in the individual lives of Christians. And of course, the ultimate 
subjective, not objective, but subjective experience is that we understand that the Holy Spirit works in the lives of individuals and is real. Now I say subjective because that is primarily a personal experience. But it is objective in the sense that people can observe the strength of the Holy Spirit in a Christian's life through the things that they do and how they conduct their lives. So I have spent a lot of time thinking about the intellectual defense of the faith. But I have recently come to think much more carefully about another element of this. And that is to think about the cultural impact of Christianity. And to think of how Christianity has determined the nature of our society. This is an uncomfortable truth for the modern mind. This is an uncomfortable truth for our current generation. But all the things in life that we hold precious and all the basis on which we make our appeals for diversity and justice and all of these things are based deeply in Christian principles that have built the West and have made it the place that it is. It's not surprising that we increasingly feel a sense of crisis in our national and our political life. Some people think that we are at the moment approaching a crisis that is not dissimilar to the crisis in the time of Cromwell when people in Parliament found themselves in different places. I hope it's not as bad as that because that led to a civil war. But we are in a place where we are beginning to doubt the validity of our institutions in which our political debate has become poisoned and rude and cruel and when any point of view other than mine is not to be tolerated and in which political debate becomes a slanging match between the left and the right. What we are doing in all of this is that we are compromising the profound principles that are based upon our Christian past of tolerance, of honesty, of open-mindedness, of legality, and all of these matters, we are treating them as if they don't matter, and that there's only one point of view that matters, and that people should just get themselves in line with it, which is much more like totalitarianism than it is with democracy as we have known it. So I've been thinking more deeply about the cultural impact of Christianity, and I think this gives us some clues as to how we, in our time, can affect the society that we live in and make a difference and work towards a better society. Now, I gave you four points this morning for students at university. Let me return to two of them. Because there are two of them, I think, that are particularly important for us. One is the idea of resilience. I think that what we all need is intellectual resilience. We need to understand the things that we believe and be confident about them. The rising tide of mental challenge and mental illness in our world, I think, must have something to do with people who have lost a sense of direction, who have lost a sense of intellectual resilience about the things that they believe and wonder what it is worth believing in this rather confusing age we live in. So, I think that Christians need to have a degree of intellectual resilience about the faith that they have embraced. And I'm not suggesting that you get up in a soapbox and shout about it. What I'm saying to you is get it in your own heart and make sure that you know what it is you believe and why you believe it. That gives us resilience. And I think the early Christians had a great deal of that. When you read the New Testament, you discover the extent to which they were committed to Christ and to the faith that they embraced when they trusted him and followed him. 
But the second thing I need to work on, and I think we all need to work on, is the idea of resolve. It's not just enough to have intellectual resilience, but it seems to me critically important that we have the resolve to live out in our lives the nature of Christian truth. And that is a very practical as opposed to an intellectual thing. We need to give expression in the way we live to the truths that we believe. And I don't think it's too much to say that that is what, that is what changed the nature of the Roman Empire. And that is what changed the nature of the world into which Christianity came. People not only heard a convincing argument about the truth of Christianity, but they saw people who actually practiced it in their day-to-day lives. Um, Like a good many people, I get the spectator, but never much get around to reading it. But uh, I did uh, notice this year in the Easter edition of the Spectator uh, an article by Tom Holland. And the title of the article is The Way of the Cross. Well, you, you might say, well, you'd expect that for an Easter edition of The Spectator. Well, I thank God for it that somebody's still publishing these kind of articles. But what Tom Holland is arguing, and he argues it in a very new book, which I've only just got and started to read, a book called Dominion. He argues that without Christ, we would not have Western values. And that's a challenging thing to think about. Without Christ, we would not have Western values. And what he argues is that it was the Samaritan-like commitment of the early Christians to ordinary, poor, suffering, dispossessed people that authenticated the message that they proclaimed because they saw in Christians people that understood their faith and were not afraid to practice it publicly. I was saying a little bit this morning about how we are departing from Christian Christian faith and, and how dangerous this is for our society, particularly when we fail to realise that it was that very faith and its practical expression which gave Christianity the power that it had then and now. And this is a piece from Greg Sheridan, um, whose work I was mentioning briefly this morning. He says... One of the main reasons Christianity spread so quickly in the years after Christ's death was its treatment of women and girls. Christian families didn't kill baby girls, so they had a lot more daughters. And as a result, they were happier. Christian daughters then converted the pagan men they had married. Now that may seem a small thing, but it's a profound thing that Christians rejected the infanticide and the abortion of the early world because they said all life is a gift from God to be treasured and to be protected. The poor, the young, the weak need to be cared for. And when you lived in the harshness of the pagan attitude of the Roman Empire, it's perhaps not surprising that in Christianity you saw something different and it touched your heart and it touched your spirit. Now, I'm going to just pause for a moment. I want to show you just one or two books, if I may. Not suggesting that you uh, get all of these, but I've been reading a number of books recently about this whole matter of understanding how Christianity impacts our daily life. This is a fairly old book, 
the secularization of the European mind in the 19th century by Owen Chadwick. And in his book, he tracks how in the 19th century people resiled from Christian faith and how um, people began to give it up. And he gives these reasons um, for why things changed. The Reformation, well, that seems a bit strange, but what he means by that is the Reformation gave people the right to question the church and its doctrines. And of course that questioning works in two directions. It can be positive, but it also can and did be uh, for some negative. Uh, Newspapers and media made everything that happened in the world widely known, so everything could be increasingly seen and people could make their own judgment on it. Marxism, of course, which is the complete opposite of Christian truth. Um, Marxism, which believes that history uh, is driven by inexorable forces, uh, that you've got a privileged elite that oppress the poor, um, and what you need is a complete transformation. Um, You know the story. And we're actually, in Britain today, suffering from a tide of cultural Marxism, which sows discontent with all our offices and all our approaches, and creates an unrest that wants change. But, but what kind of change are we going to get? Is it going to, be, is it going to be a democratic future? Or is it more likely to be a totalitarian future? It's worth thinking about. Because it certainly won't be a Christian future. The Industrial Revolution, of course, which caused uh, so much suffering and difficulty for working people and, be, and disillusioned people, a sense of anti-clericalism, that the clerics lived in the fat of the land, um, and Darwinism, of course, which I've referred to, and then scientific materialism. Uh, these were the things that caused uh, profound changes across Europe in the course of history and did a great deal to diminish um, the, the, its Christian heritage. But a number of books that uh, I've come across are as follows. But let me just show you uh, this slide of Greta Thunberg. Um, I was struck by her saying, don't believe me, believe the science. Uh, and of course this is the cry now, uh, believe the science, the science of the scientists have got this sus. You can't challenge the science. The scientists know we came from nowhere. The scientists know that we can live in a whole range of ways. The scientists know that the planet's going to end because of climate change. Don't challenge the science. Well, actually, as a rather humble scientist, I'm not buying that because scientists are fallible. Uh, scientists make mistakes and science make mistakes and science always progresses because science listens to the dissenters. And science is not done by consensus. It's largely done by individual discoveries. But this is the mood of our world. Science tells us what it's all about. Christians don't actually believe that. Um, They believe that while science is to be honoured and used and has transformed the world, it's not the ultimate source of our answers. Um, But uh, the books that I I have been most um, attracted to recently is a book by Greg Sheridan, whom I've quoted a few times, God is Good for You. A defense of Christianity in troubled times. And he talks about how Christianity built the West and changed the world by the way in which it treated ordinary people and brought into the world a philosophy of life that was unknown in past ages that were cruel and totalitarian. Rod Dreher, a Catholic American journalist, um, who has a very interesting book called The Benedict Option, Benedict was the saint who lived at the time of the collapse of the Roman Empire. And Drea's point is we're possibly living at the beginning of the end of the West as we have known it. And as we descend into uh, scientific, materialistic, atheistic chaos, uh, remember that this happened in the 5th century when the Roman Empire collapsed. 
And it was people like Benedict that set up monasteries, not to withdraw from life, but to try and keep alive the light of Christ in their communities and to continue to try and spread the gospel of Christ in an increasingly darkening world. We need to do that. We need to develop resilience and resolve that our young people will not be indoctrinated out of their parents' Christian faith and that they will find a resilience to face the onslaught of atheism and materialism. We need to get real about this because it's happening around us to a frightening extent. And I think some of the time we're sleepwalking uh, into the future without having a sense of what's happening to us. Drea's book is a profound wake-up call and one that influenced me quite deeply. There's the book I mentioned this morning, The Noble Liar, talking about how the mass media promote messages that are often unsympathetic to Christian truth. And two others, one of them by Koch and Smith about the suicide of the West, saying, Western people used to have confidence in their civilization. Now they are beginning to doubt its value and its virtue. And are beginning to let it go. What a strange thing this is. And perhaps one of the most challenging books of all. uh, Written here by a Catholic theologian called. The Cube and the Cathedral. I I didn't actually know what the cube was. Uh, Apparently it's a modern building in Paris. Which I've never seen. But it's a building that kind of celebrates. The Enlightenment, the Renaissance. And human reason. And the, the cathedral of course. Is the Cathedral of Notre Dame. And he uses that figure as the two challenges for the modern world. The challenge of the ancient faith or the challenge of human reason set against each other. And he makes the point that when the European nations drew up the constitution of the European Union, they seemed to have a mass spasm of amnesia and wrote out of their constitution any reference to 1500 years of Christian experience. Now, I mention these books. Some of you may want to look at them. They are profoundly challenging and books that have made me think very carefully about it's one thing to feel I know why I am a Christian, but to what extent am I prepared to live out my Christian faith in the way that Jesus taught and to act like the Good Samaritan and to deal with people for the love of Christ, for his sake and for their sake. Let's leave the books there. Don't rush out and buy them, but uh, they may be, to some of you, particularly who are students, that you may wish to look at this. Now, I'm going to run out of time, as I always do. It's a kind of weakness I have, so we need to get finished fairly quickly. So let me, um, let, let me just very quickly draw this together. In the New Testament, we are taught that there are the three institutions that God has set in the world, family, state, and church. Jesus said, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Romans 13, Paul talks about the state and he says that Christians should give um, due allegiance to the state, they should honour the state, they should pray for those who are in authority and he talks about the state being for the promotion of good, the suppression of evil and the equitable distribution of resources. In our tradition in this country, we have broadly political philosophy of the right and of the left. The political philosophy of the right is the philosophy that stresses small government, individual responsibility, commerce, business, the creation of wealth so that you can have social services and so that you can distribute that wealth. The tradition of the left, of course, 
is more towards the equitable distribution of resources and the spread of these resources fairly throughout our society. We need both of these traditions in our politics. It's just so sad that at the present time they have become so appallingly polarised. It's not easy for Christians to set themselves as either on the right or on the left. Christians are frequently seen to be on the right. That's in part because they believe in the importance of individual initiative and the freedom of the individual. Well, I once heard the late Tony Benn saying that the Labour Party owes far more to Methodism than it ever did to Marxism. And, of course, the tradition of the left in Britain is a tradition that grows out of the Wesleyan revivals, out of an understanding of the poverty of the poor and a desire to ensure that government policy reflected that, again rooted in a sense that every individual is made in the image of God. Of course, there is no reason why Christians should not involve themselves in politics But I think they find it hard to do because it is very difficult nowadays to be in politics and not to be seen as partisan. And the one thing that Christianity is not is that it is not partisan. There's one very interesting example in Acts 16. You may remember when Paul was beaten with Silas and thrown into prison and then there was an earthquake and the the jailer was converted. And then when they found out Paul was a Roman citizen, the magistrates came and said look, um, could, would you guys leave town because this is becoming embarrassing. Uh, we recognise that we, we shouldn't, you shouldn't have been beaten because you're Roman citizens. And Paul does a very strange thing. He's there as an apostle preaching the gospel, but he does a kind of apostolic sit-in. And he says, we're not going until you come and recognise the mistake you've made. And you think, well, is that not a bit petulant? No, it wasn't. He was insisting that the civil power did its duty. And that, of course, is something that Christians have a perfect right to do. But Christians have a profounder contribution to make to their communities and to their world. The first 30 years of Christianity saw the spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. People who were used to pagan cruelty saw a much different, uplifting, loving, caring group of people who, though they were lay people of modest attainment, loved each other dealt with their neighbour, accepted persecution. Some of them died for their loyalty to Christ without being bitter or without fighting back. And simply by the example of their love, of showing the love of Christ, became admired around the world and drew people into a faith that valued the poor and the weak and the lowly. The challenge for us is to recognise in modern times The importance of accepting our individual responsibility. Our responsibility to use our mind, our strength in the service of God. Our responsibility towards our families and our children to care for them and to give them the very best that we can do. To look after our neighbours and to be helpful and straightforward. To do what we can for those who fall in hard times and find it difficult. Not because we want to start a political movement about it or even to get a a great crusade uh, underway. Do that if you can. But just deal with the individual like the Samaritan who needs your help next door, next street, on the campus that you find in town, who's hungry, or without money, or who's in difficulty. Do what you can. That's what the Christians did. And do it because you see in every individual the light of the image of God. That's what Christians taught the world. 
And that's what Christians still need to teach the world. We need to be aware of the limits of the state. The state can do so much. But you know, I was intrigued recently to discover, I think I'm right in, in saying this, that up to 50% of the social uh, of community services in Britain have the roots somewhere in church activity. That's a profound thing. And for each one of us, student or not, to be able to treat other people in the way in which Christ taught us to treat the, 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 the traveller on the road uh, to Jericho, to do that in the sphere where we are is to make a profound difference and to make a change in our society. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, and with this I'll close, he teaches Christians that we should be servants, like Christ was a servant. Found in human form, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He taught us that we should be students, that we should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he said that we should shine like stars in the world. Maybe you were looking for something a bit more political tonight and a bit more profound. But the message is just simply this. <coughs> Show the love of Christ where you are and you will change your world. Mm -hmm. And you may change our society and our community. I think there are darker times ahead. And I think we need to be far more committed at grassroots level to our Christian faith. Let me finish with one story. It's maybe not quite uh, mainstream to this, but here is a thing that happened to me. In my first year of school teaching, I landed in a grammar school in the west of Scotland. I was only ever one lesson ahead of my pupils, but I was enjoying it. There was a shortage of chemistry teachers, which is probably why I got the job. And I was given three or four senior classes to teach because there was no one else to do it. I taught some of the cleverest pupils I have ever encountered. And I enjoyed it immensely. They seemed to think I knew what I, knew what I was doing, but I was just keeping, just keeping my head ahead of the class. Um, we had interesting lessons on atomic structure of the periodic table. And occasionally people would ask me, um, what's behind all that? Where, where, does, where, where did atoms come from? What? What is that all about? Now, as a teacher, you have to be really careful in these circumstances and not take liberty uh, of your position. But I did my best, gently, calmly, and we had interesting discussions about where the universe might have come from. Two or three years later, I was invited to speak at the Christian Union at Glasgow University. And uh, sitting in the front row was a young lady who was in my class at school. And I thought, well, she's come to hear a chemistry teacher. So at the end of the evening, I went over to her and said, Hi, nice to see you. I hadn't seen her for two or three years. How are you? Fine. I said, what brings you here tonight? And I hoped that she would say, oh, well, I mean, I couldn't miss you speaking, you know. <laughs> um, she said, I became a Christian in my first year at university. I met some Christians in my class. They took me to a CU mission, and I became a Christian. I found Jesus. And before I could say to her, oh, that's wonderful, she said to me, but I want you to know that the first time I ever thought about God was in your chemistry class. Now, I was completely unaware of that. 
I wasn't overdoing it, I don't think. But just in the ordinary conversation of science and faith, somebody's mind was open to something bigger than themselves. And I think that's the point of what we need to do. If we want a better society, then practice it at a personal level and do it to the best of your ability, one-to-one. If you need more politics, ask me back. <laughs> Thank you, Alistair, for your challenge tonight. That was been thought about deep subjects there, and we've given a great introduction to carry that further. We're just going to take time to close by singing the words of number 375. Salvation belongs to our God. The second verse says, And we the redeemed shall be strong in purpose and